0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. If you are visiting today, I've been preaching through the book of Acts, preaching through Acts in the morning, the book of Exodus in the evening. I found so many ways in which they complement each other. In fact, I didn't have time even to put this in the sermon notes, but I think there's at least three references to uh, the Ten Commandments in various words, various ways maybe you can see that behind the scenes. I won't have time to deal with that. But a lot of connections between Acts and Exodus. And I'm preaching the Ten Commandments in the evening right now. And so um, here now, the words of the living God, the true God, from Acts chapter 14. I'll read verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let us now ask God's blessing on his word. Oh, holy and perfect God, we ask that you would now be with us, Uh, be with your people, grant them spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit speaks, what Jesus Christ speaks through the preaching of his word to his people. Grant your servant fidelity to this word, that the name of Jesus Christ and the living God may be magnified today, and that Jesus Christ and the hope found in him may be set before your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of today's sermon, We Bring You Good News, comes directly from verse 15, where it says, We Bring You Good News. So there's nothing particularly original with that. But I do think it captures some of the heart of what's going on here. There's a good news message, related message, that is being set forth that I want to put on display. Uh, And unlike chapter 13, where those identical words are used when Paul goes and preaches that great sermon at Pisidian Antioch to the Jews, now he's at a pagan Gentile audience only but to the Jews also, he said in chapter 13, we bring you good news. Same words are used here. The difference being in, is that in chapter 13, he, he really spells out, or Luke uh, tells us precisely uh, the, the essence of the good news, namely that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That certainly would have been preached here too. But he doesn't repeat that part. Rather, what is brought out are two absolutely necessary consequences of anyone who would look to Jesus Christ, the object, the source of the good news, the one who has been raised from the dead. Paul says uh, the good news now concerns two consequences of those who look to this one. You must turn from these vain things, And you must turn to the living God. And so with that in view, with the good news being spelled out in terms of these absolutely necessary consequences for for even you, if you would receive the good news that you must do these two things, you must turn from what Paul says, Paul and Barnabas say, are these vain things. And we will discuss what those are. You must turn from these vain things and turn to the living God. And so let us now jump into the text. Uh, Paul and Barnabas arrive here in Lystra, of course, a- after having been thrown out uh, of where they were, uh, those threatening to stone them. We'll see next week that uh, Paul actually is stoned. Uh, but here they come to Lystra, and Paul begins to preach. And there is this lame man who hears him, and Paul heals him. And the lame man is significant for a number of reasons. I won't have the full time to go into that, but just know this. This lame man's condition puts on display the kind of lifeless vanity and hopelessness that the gospel delivers one from, and we know that uh, because this man's the healing of this lame man is almost an exact parallel uh, of what the apostle Peter does back in chapter 3. And the the similarities between those two events are quite stunning. Both are said to be lame from birth. Uh, Both apostles look intently at them. And most importantly, both leap. Uh, The language here in the ESV is that this man springs up. But it's the same word translated leapt up in chapter 3, referencing what? When I preached chapter three, I said, that is looking back to Isaiah chapter 35, where Isaiah says, in the day of messianic resurrection, the lame will leap like the deer. And here, that is happening again. And the reason I go into that is because this man's, this lame man's healing is not some kind of a party trick. Oh, look what the Lord can do. He can... He can can heal you from lameness. He can do that. He can do that now and at any time. But here, this event is revelatory of the gospel message, which concerns resurrection life from the dead found in Jesus Christ alone. The man's healing is indeed revelatory. It puts on display the content of the gospel, namely resurrection life. Well, what is the response of the crowds to this this healing? Well, we read in verses 11 and 12 that upon seeing the demonstration of this resurrection message, they cry out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, interestingly enough, Barnabas, they identify with Zeus and Paul with Hermes. Why is that? Well, uh, Hermes is... Uh, The messenger God, the messenger of Zeus. And so uh, Paul, and this is kind of important to recognize, though they're together, Paul seems to be the chief one speaking. (laughs) He's the messenger, so to speak, of the two, if there is one to be chosen from. Um, And so uh, while they are shouting out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. You see, at first, uh, Paul and Barnabas don't. When, when they get excited sometimes, they, they cry out in their native tongue. These people cry out in Lyconian uh, this message, but they don't quite understand them. They see that they're quite uh, agitated. But then, beginning in verse 13, where Luke tells us the, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the front of the city, he comes out with these oxen, the, with the oxen and garlands, particularly with the oxen intent on making sacrifices to these two. Then it dawns on them with absolute horror what is going on. And so they do what is appropriate when blasphemy is happening. You'll remember that when, uh, even when the high priests think... That Jesus is blaspheming by identifying himself with God, what do they do? They tear their robes. Well, uh, these do what is appropriate in the presence of blasphemy. They tear their robe, they rend their garments, and they cry out with this question, verse 15. Men, why? Why? Why are you doing these things? It's absolute irrationality, it's absolute insanity to do what you are doing. Interestingly, what is the very first point that they put forward to show that this is insanity, that this is absolutely irrational, to give them worship? Verse 15, We also are men of like nature with you. We're going to have to peer into the language of this in Greek a little bit. Uh, but bear with me because it is vitally important that you understand what I'm saying here. The ESV translates, uh, the translation of um, the phrase of like nature is the Greek word "homoiopathes," homo, 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 homoiopathes, which means of like passions, of like passions. And you can know that I'm not just, Sort of making that up, because if you have the King James Version, that is exactly what is said. We also are men of like passions with you. And so once you see that, the important thing that you need to note is not that we are those who have a human nature like yours. We are those who have a human nature which is defined by passions. These passions are not just emotions. One writer says uh, that this word, homoepathes, says it describes one who has like feelings or sensations, who is affected in the same way by the same things as heat and cold, pleasure and pain, disease and death, the key takeaway being there, one who is affected by... That is one who has like passions. Something to move from one state to another state. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Kids, just imagine that um, you sit down for dinner, and your mother wheels out to you a meal that she's been working hard on all day. And the meal turns out to be the, Mom, I don't like that dish. Now, the Mom, I don't like that dish has been served many times and in many ways in the York home. Uh, but kids, just imagine that instead of saying, Mom, I don't like that, you simply dutifully eat the dinner with thankfulness and say, Thank you, Mom. And then perhaps your mom would come along afterwards, almost in thankful response to that, and say, and now here's this. And What is this? Well, this turns out to be the most luscious, beautiful, delectable chocolate cake you have ever seen in your life. Now, during that dinner, we, if we could chart it, we could chart your emotional state from moving from down here to way, way up here, right? And if some of the other kids from the church were there at your dinner table, they would have the same response. You could chart them the same way because they are of like passions with you. They too can be moved by chocolate cake. God is not like that. God is not of like passions with you or with anyone else he is not of like passions because god does not have passions he is incapable of being affected by of being acted upon of being moved from one state or another he is without passions god was is without passions who would say that Beloved, that is precisely what has been confessed by the Reformed uh, for centuries. And by confessed, I mean stated in our confession of faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1 says this. There is but one only living, and please note the the. Repetition of living It also appears in our text. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or what? Without body parts or passions. God is without passions because he cannot be acted upon, affected by, moved from one state to another state to be without passions to use the theological language is to be impassible to be with passions is to be passable now interestingly enough maybe you don't have the westminster confession of faith open chapter 2 paragraph 1 but if you did what is the one and only proof text given in the westminster confession for this doctrine of the impassibility of god it's our text it's Acts fourteen fifteen. The place, the only place where the confession goes to prove this doctrine is here. Now, that's not to say it's the only place where it's taught. It's taught other places. In fact, I've shown it from some other places. But this is the place that the confession goes to prove this text. Why am I so passionate about God's impassibility? Why is knowing this so important for your Christian life? Unless you understand God as being impassable, as being without passions, unless you understand him in that way, you cannot fulfill the command given to you in this text to turn from these vain things. Because how are the vain things, these vain, vain things spoken of in verse 15, how are they defined? How does the text define these vain things that you are to turn from? These vain things, the things that you are commanded to turn from in religious worship, are the things of like passions. You see, we're not just being told, turn from vain things and those vain things are us. True enough. But the real thought being put forward here is you are commanded to turn from worshiping vain things, and the vain things are defined as things of like passions, passable things, things being affected by, determined by anything or anyone else. Think about this. The Greek gods Zeus and Hermes were perfect examples of such vain, such passable things, weren't they? Uh, The gods were certainly of like passions with men, the Greek gods. You ever go up on or read the Greek mythology to see what's going on up there on Mount Olympus? It's uh, one god flattering another god, one god antagonizing another god, one god sleeping with another god's wife, and all-out warfare ensues. That's passions aflame. That's being moved. That's being affected by, determined by someone or something else outside of yourself. And in calling you to turn away from these vain things, the gospel commands you to turn away in religious worship from anything which does not afford you the absolute immovable stability of found in the living, immutable, impassable God of the Bible. You are commanded to turn from all such passable objects of worship. What are examples of such things? Well, they're innumerable, but they could be causes, politics, sports, Social transformation. They could be relationships, either a friendship or a romantic relationship. They could be entertainment, movies, video games, or pleasure. Perhaps the most important thing for you to devote yourself to in life is a life of, well, a life of ease. One devoid from discomfort. One of pleasure. If you are giving the kind of devotion to these things passable things that you should be giving to God, if you are giving devotion to things which can be affected by, determined by, acted upon by others, if you are investing religious worship in these things, then you are giving yourself to these vain things. Flee. Flee such vain idolatry, such empty, hollow, lifeless Idols, And if we make God to be the passable God, we make him to be an idol. Turn from such things to the living God, the living God. And so now we move to point two, turn to the living God. We read in verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to uh, a, or really, I would argue, should be translated there, the living God. What does it mean for God to be the living God? Uh, Is it just that he was was born one day, so he's alive? Well, no. (laughs) We all know that's not true. Oh, dear ones, precious little ones of Jesus Christ, knowing God as the living God is no small thing for your Christian life. Knowing God as the living God is perhaps one of the most important callings, if not the most important calling you have, as you are called to know God. So please hear me. Hear me on this matter of knowing God as the living God. God is first revealed as the living God as he shows himself to Moses, reveals himself by his covenant name, Yahweh, how is Yahweh the one who is the living God? Well, that name Yahweh reflects what God tells Moses in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked for his name, God says, My name is I am that which I am. I am that which I am. That is the name which stands behind God's name, Yahweh. Only the God who is the I am, that which I am, only he who has all being and therefore has all life in himself already, only he can truly be called the living God. The prophet Jeremiah makes this very explicit, that Yahweh, the I am, is the living God when he says this, Uh, in a passage very much like ours, one where the idols are being exposed. He says, Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord, Yahweh, is the true God. He is the living God. And in Jeremiah chapter 10, that is in contrast to the empty, hollow, vain idols of this world. Yahweh alone is the one who is self-existent. And by that, he is in a class, and this class has one member, himself. <laughs> he is the one who is truly alive. And by truly alive, I, you could say this. This is a helpful phrase. God is maximally alive. I mean that there is no one who could possibly be more alive than God is. Let me give you an illustration again. I gave you the chocolate, chocolate cake illustration. I'll give you another illustration, Uh, also dealing with kids. Uh, Sometimes a parent may say to their child, and I'm not suggesting you do say this by the way. (laughs) I'm just saying it is said sometimes. Uh, You have so much potential. Why can't you live up to it? Why can't you actualize your potential? You have a brilliant mind but you do not apply yourself to your studies or um, um, you could be a star athlete. If you just worked on it a little bit. Well, kids can be spoken to like that. Again, not saying you should. No one can speak to God like that. God has no unactualized potential. If he had unactualized potential, he would not be alive. He would not be living. He would not be the maximally alive God. He would not be what? He would not be perfect if god can be moved if he can be acted upon even if by an act of of his own will some would say well he can't be acted upon by those outside of himself but he can choose to move himself if god can do that if he can move himself he is not perfect if you serve such a god even as one who can affect himself to move himself in some way you are not serving the living God. Maximally, full of life. See how this idea of God being the living God, just, just note how it is the perfect contrast to humans who are described as being of like passions, turn from uh, the the vain things, the vain the things of like passions, to the living God. And this one, this living God, is the one who you are called to turn to and to worship. And as the uh, one, the only one who is maximally alive, who is absolutely perfect, the one who is categorically not of like passions with men, as such. He is the only God worthy of worship. No God except, I can, and I'm going to use these words, and I hope you, you'll use these words too. No God except an impassable God is worthy of your worship. Every passable God who can be affected by someone or something else is a vain, empty idol. Who would want to worship such a thing? I do not. I hope you do not either. If you worship a passable God, one who can be acted upon you, either by you or an act of his own will, you, you worship a God who is like the child we talked about earlier, um, who can be emotionally moved from being the one who, who got the, mom, I don't like this meal, to the one who, is the, uh, who receives the chocolate cake. God is not like that. God is so full of life and perfection that it is impossible that he should ever be moved. Let me bring this to bear to you, because this is not just some abstract philosophical concept. Why is this of such critical importance for you in your Christian life? If God can be moved, his love for you can be moved. If you do not worship the impassable God, if you worship a passable God, one who can be moved, you have no guarantee, none, that that will not be the case. Perhaps God God may be moved for your love for him when you offer him the, the chocolate cake of your own devising or when you withhold the chocolate cake that he wants, you see. You do not worship such a passable God away with such insanity It's in view of such eternal perfections like this that Gerhardus Voss says this of God, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. He was never moved to love you. He eternally loved you, predestinated you in love from the foundation of the world. Now, in the final part of verse 15, we're told that this living God is the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. That's actually a reference to uh, the Ten Commandments, to uh, the commandment we will be looking at tonight, in fact. The living God does not get his being by being acted upon others. The living God gives being to all else that exists. He is the creator God. Or as Paul will go on later to say in chapter 17 to another completely pagan group, he says, this God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We have our being, our existence in and from him. But his being is ungiven by anyone else. He gives being to all else. Let me end with this final application as we consider this living God. Yes, we've seen that God, uh, the God of the Bible, is certainly the only impassable being in existence, the only one who is not of like passions, the only one who cannot be moved. By contrast, what do we see in this text? We see uh, a very movable, moved entity. The masses, the crowds. Uh, The crowds are not merely passable. They are passable in the extreme. They are fickle. The text shows us that, right? The crowd is moved from the beginning. Uh, uh, We see they they are those who want to come and offer uh, worship and adulation to Barnabas and Paul. And then we'll see next week the same group we read of in verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, the same crowds, they stoned Paul. From worshiping to seeking to execute. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's higher than the cake graph I gave a moment ago, I believe. Uh, they, these are those of like passions put on display. But you will say to me, well, Pastor, uh, that was back then. These, these are modern times. Well, listen, humanity is just as restless just as fickle, just as passable and changeable, perhaps even much more so now than they were to, uh, than today as they were then. Indeed, we could say this, people have weaponized technology so as to move masses from states of adulation to someone's complete destruction in a manner of nanoseconds, and not just in one locale, but globally. So the so-called wisdom of the crowd, which I think is seen in kind of the scorched earth policies of social media, which can be used for good. I'm not saying it's inherently bad. It can be used for good, but it's so often used for destruction. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Be careful. Be careful how you use those tools. Beloved, especially young ones, be constantly on your guard against looking for wisdom, life, Vitality amongst the crowds who express themselves through such tools. Seek wisdom, life, contentment, and not those fickle, vain, quickly moved things, but in the living God, who is maximally full of life and perfection, the triune God of the Bible. And how can you have fellowship with this one? Only through the one How can you have fellowship with this living God? Only through the one who was once dead, but it is now living, Jesus Christ. You must look to him. He is the one who has blazed the path of entrance into the presence of the living God, a path which... ...the place of perfect enjoyment and communion as a man, as the God-man. With the living God, look to him, hear the good news of the gospel today. Turn from these vain things, these passable, imperfect, movable, lifeless idols of the world. May you be like the Thessalonians of whom Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians nine one nine 1, 9, and 10. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus Christ, the raised, resurrected Jesus, he is the only one who delivers you from the wrath to come. Turn to the living God in and through him. Turn away from the idols and spend your life, the rest of your life, as Paul says in that passage, waiting for God's Son from heaven. And as you do that, as you wait for him, he who is the living God, you will be able to say with the psalmist, Chelsea, here is the quote that I told you I was going to end with. Think of this one and his enjoyment of this living God. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.